yourself uh, listen at ease and in a certain way there's a there's a kind of meditative quality if you will to the listening which is that um, you're not particularly supposed to learn anything um, and you certainly won't be tested <laughs> by anyone here um, Last week, for those who came, uh, I was uh, speaking about some teachings from Ajahn Chah, who was the wonderful and wise abbot of the forest monastery where I lived in Thailand. Um, The teachings of taking the one seat in the center of your experience, in the center of the world, and awakening to that which is present here and now um, and what it means to live in the reality of the present. I'd like to follow up this week with another of his most central teachings um, that he uh, called Awakening the One Who Knows. O nobly born, O you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, Remember who you really are. Remember your true nature. This kind of invitation is given at the beginning of many of the famous Buddhist texts and teachings, and it's been carried down from generation to generation by the elders in this tradition. Um, Rumi, poet, puts it another way quite simply, He says, pay regular visits to yourself. (laughs) And in a certain way, what we could say meditation is about is that returning home back to ourself when we've lost who we really are. To come back to what is not far, in fact, what is nearer than near. When we rest in the one who knows, we sit, quiet the mind, open the heart, we touch in ourselves a natural wisdom, a natural openness of heart that is sometimes called our true nature or our Buddha nature. It is that place that can see the world with the eyes of compassion, that can live through the many changes of life with a heart of wisdom. Now, one of the best ways to understand this one who knows within us, that place of wisdom, is to look at the one who forgets. And forgetting is remarkable. It is one of the most wondrous things that there is. Forgetfulness and sleep. I mean, look at it. On this earth, in this particular planet, beings sleep. It is quite mysterious. Nobody exactly knows why. Of course, there are all these benefits that come from it. But who knows why mammals and and amphibians and so forth started actually sleeping? It's a really weird thing that there you are being active and conscious in whatever life form you're in, and then for a certain part of the day, you go completely inactive and unconscious. 
And then there's this whole other world, the dream world, that awakens in you. Can anybody explain that? And that happens. And then you wake up again and you start all over. I mean, it's really mysterious. You know, and some people sleep or being asleep for a long time, like the hibernating bears and so forth. I don't know, I've met teenagers who seem to be able to do that pretty, pretty actively as well. Um, but it's a remarkable thing that we go to sleep and then we wake up and the world reappears and we go to sleep and we let go of the world. You know, and people who are afraid of letting go. They think they're afraid of letting go. When you get to that moment, just before you're going to bed, when you're really tired and you've just had a long, exhausting, whatever it is, and there you finally lie down, oh, what a joy to let go and not have to be aware of any of it. Isn't that amazing? So we know, something in us knows how to let go already. Now there's two kinds of sleep. There's that kind, which is this mystery. The second kind of sleep is the waking spell that we are under a good part of the time anyway. Um, It's the sleep of automatic living. That way where you drive somewhere, right, and you pull up in your car, put put it in park or whatever, put on the brake, and then you realize, oh, how did I get here? You know, I don't even remember how this happened. Somebody drove this car here, but I was off, you know, in some other city. I was in Chicago, you know, problem solving or something like that. But it's not just in driving, that kind of automatic living. It can come in all kinds of ways. It can come in our parenting, when we're going along with our children, and all of a sudden out of our mouth comes mom or dad. You know, where did that come from? The very same thing that we said we would never do, and there it comes out. Um, Or we sleep by not paying attention to this body, as if this were something that wasn't really so much a part of our life experience. And um, so we don't really recognize what it is to live uh, alive in this human form. Um, One of the most remarkable things in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a place where Arjuna is speaking to Krishna. Krishna is the divine, is God, if you will, in this dialogue, and says, in this whole miraculous world, um, what what is the most miraculous thing? Asks the question, and And Lord Krishna responds, in this most miraculous world of beings, especially of humans talking with Arjuna, said the most miraculous thing is that human beings can see people die all around them and still think it's not going to happen to them. (laughs) And as I talked about last week and was talked about the week before, on the retreat that just happened, Um, A few weeks ago, we were sitting in meditation in this beautiful, exquisite desert in Yucca Valley. Um, And then one of the participants in the retreat, this very dear person, very kind-hearted doctor and um, beloved person, died. And we did a whole ceremony and ritual and all of that. 
and there was his cushion, and there had been a person there sitting and meditating, and then there wasn't. And his journey continued not in this body. We think that it won't happen to us. The kinds of sleep um, that we get ourselves into is really what also could be called denial, not paying attention, um, you know, not really looking at the way this world is. Um, and our foreign policy is a kind of sleep, if you will. We're the largest supplier of weapons on the face of the earth over decades. And then we wonder why the world doesn't feel very safe for us when we sell hundreds of billions of dollars worth of uh, weaponry to countries all over. Or Rita Mae Brown, who wrote, America is the only country in the world where the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose. Right? There are ways in which we take things that are important to us and they lose their meaning. Now, sleep has its benefits. There's a letting go, a rest, a forgiving and forgetting. We need sleep in the cycle of our activities. In one monastery where I practiced, when they talked about the sleepiness that comes in meditation and sleep, instead of being judgmental of it, it was called the poor man's nirvana, right? <laughs> that sleep is a wonderful thing. It's sort of what you can get. Especially in light of the traumas and the sorrows that we all carry in this life. Emily Dickinson writes, there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance, so memory can step across as if within a swoon. There is a pain so utter it swallows substance up, then covers the abyss with trance. Another form of this sleep. Or James Baldwin, who writes, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their pain. And it's so easy. We live in a culture that's sometimes been described as the addicted society the addictions of food or alcohol or drugs or materialism or speed or all of those kinds of things. Sigmund Freud, in his essay on civilization and its discontents, writes, Life as we find it is too hard for us. It entails too much pain, too many disappointments, impossible tasks. We cannot do without palliative remedies. There are perhaps three of these means, powerful diversions of interest, which lead us to care little about our misery, substitute gratifications, which lessen it, and intoxicating substances, which make us insensitive to it, 
something of this kind seems indispensable. So that's Siggy. Um, <laughs> probably not on his best day, but nevertheless. <laughs> There's a certain truth to it, if you really look honestly at human experience and how easily we get into denial about things. I have this list, see if I can find it here, um, that you've probably heard at other places, um, of actual statements found on insurance forms in the description of car accidents um, um, were collected from... Um, them. One wrote, coming home, I drove into the wrong house and collided with a tree I don't have. (laughs) Or, I collided with a stationary truck coming the other way. (laughs) A pedestrian hit me and went under my car. The guy was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. My car was legally parked as it backed into the other vehicle. (laughs) An invisible car came out of nowhere, struck my car, and vanished. (laughs) I was sure the old fellow would never make it to the other side of the road when I struck him. So, there's that. (laughs) All the excuses that we make about the way things are that we don't want to see. Michael Ventura, the people you have to lie to own you. The things you have to lie about own you. When your children see you owned, then they are not your children anymore. They are the children of what owns you. If money owns you, they are the children of money. If your need for pretense and illusion owns you, they are the children of pretense and illusion. If your fear of loneliness owns you, they are the children of loneliness. If your fear of truth owns you, they are the children of the fear of truth. So there is this going to sleep, In the Buddhist tradition, it's called ignorance, delusion, not seeing clearly. Now, this forgetfulness is such a mysterious quality. Our separate universe is constructed of one thing, forgetfulness. Emerson writes about us as children being born trailing clouds of glory. And the Hindus sing this song about the child in the womb who sings, Oh, let me remember who I am. And then the first cry after birth is, Oh dear, I'm forgetting already. 
Alan Watts wrote a very compelling and wonderful book entitled The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. The kind of ultimate hide and seek, the divine within us that doesn't remember who we really are. And even religion and spiritual practice can collaborate in this ruse. Joseph Campbell described most religious ritual as an inoculation against the mystery. You have a little bit of it in some church or temple or Buddhist hocus-pocus, whatever it happens to be. You know how it is. And then you don't really have to look around and say, how did I get here? What is this? What does it mean that I'm alive for a time and then who I take to be myself disappears? When we forget who we really are, when we get lost in the small sense of self, in the body of fear, when we get too busy in our lives to awaken, then we get lost in consumerism and in our conflicts and too busy kind of being ourselves in ambition or fear or road rage or whatever it happens to be. And we think somehow that we can just keep doing this. We forget that we don't have time. It's like the minister who was in the bar in his community, seeing all these people drinking, he kind of went in and thought it was a little bit too much. So he stood up and he said, all those who want to go to heaven step over here. And a number of people stepped over, but there was at least one of his flock who uh, stayed on the other side of the room. He was going to give them a kind of lecture. And the minister said to him, don't you want to go to heaven when you die? And the man said, oh, I thought you were talking about right now. (laughs) We think we have time, actually until the doctor calls with this terrible news about us or a loved one or, you know, our child or our mammogram or, or, or some other test or some accident or our parents or someone we care about. And all of a sudden it dawns on us again that we really don't know. And we don't. There's a cost to our sleep-waking, our living like machines. Because when we do that, we don't see with the heart the people that we're with and the life that we're living. The cost is like this couple who came to see me for couples therapy and said they were going to get divorced. And, you know, they had a lot of reasons maybe to do it. And they said, and it'll be fine for the kids. We'll just live near each other and kind of work it out. I said, it'll be fine for the kids? I mean, come on. It may be necessary sometimes, but it's not easy. The cost is when President Bush went on the television this fall to talk about initiating the war on terrorism and how we were going to 
start by a war in Afghanistan, what was most appalling to me in that, or most disturbing, was that he didn't weep. I mean, it's one thing to say that we're going to do this, but um, I think whenever somebody who is an honorable leader says, we're going to go to war, it means a lot of people are going to suffer terribly and a lot of people are going to die. And you have to have some sense of the grief of that, the weight of it. I mean, if he'd said, I'm really sorry that we have to go to war, this is a terrible thing, whether one agrees whether we should or not, at least there would have been that heart that said, this is a terrible thing. There's a cost to living without paying attention. And I hear it in the men's retreats. There's a men's retreat this week when we sit in a circle in the evening and men talk about the fathers who weren't there for them or the children that they didn't really parent and father and all the tears they have for that. There's a cost as a nation You know, if we try to isolate ourselves from the world, wealthy as we are, and knowing that there are hungry people, knowing that the power of greed, the forces of injustice, the reality of racism is still active and rampant in this world, um, and that turning another way, turning away from it in isolation, a terrible cost. In ancient Greek, the word for sleep is lethe. Remember the river lethe that you cross um, and the journey of the underworld? And the word for truth is alethe. It means not sleeping, but to awaken and to see things as they are. But we don't want to awaken some part of us. We're afraid. We're afraid the heart can't bear this human life to look at it directly. It's like that story I tell so often of Ramdas when he was leading the seminar on service to a thousand people over a number of weeks and months. Um, and having people look at the spirit of service. And one day a woman came in and raised her hand and said, you know, I've been reflecting about what it means to serve another human being. And I realized that uh, every day the last few months when I go to work, go, go to the subway or the BART, I pass this homeless man sits on the corner, and I've been putting some change in his cup. And I realized that even though I've done this for several months, I never really looked at him. And because we're in this class, I started to pay attention to that. And then all of a sudden I realized why I was so afraid. I was afraid that if I ever really looked him in the eye, the next week I'd invite him to come and sleep in my living room floor. And so there's some part of us that's afraid of our own generosity and our own love, afraid that they're all going to come into our living room. 
but they are all coming in. I mean, turn your TV and they're coming in. And we are all connected. This is all about the one who forgets that small sense of self that fears that the heart can't bear to open to this world, that forgets the greatness of heart that is your birthright. Then who is the one who knows, the Buddha within, that awakened heart? When we remember, we see this world with the eyes of wisdom and compassion. The awakening of the one who knows is so simple. This is the way things are. This is the joys of it. This is the sorrows of it. This is the truth of life. The one who knows sees that life is short. O nobly born, you who are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas, remember who you really are and see this life as it is. The truth of impermanence. Thus shall ye think of this fleeting world, says the Diamond Sutra. A star at dawn, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a phantom, a dream. And the truth is that you never know. You kind of know. But what's going to happen tomorrow is really uncertain. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, used to talk about this all the time. He used the word in Thai, my na. My means not and na means certain. People would ask him all these things and he'd look back and he'd say, my na, it's uncertain, isn't it? Say, what about enlightenment? He'd say, it's uncertain, isn't it? What about this? It's uncertain, isn't it? And then he'd just kind of look you in the eye. Isn't it uncertain? It's the truth. Somebody told me last year, and if anybody has more information about it, I'd be interested, about a work of art in Colorado called the Salt Monument. Anybody know about this? An artist in Colorado, I think it's a woman, created this work of art that's, that she tends um, as a kind of a temple. She made this beautiful room for it. In the middle of the room is a clear lucite um, crystal on its end that is oh, six or eight feet high, filled with salt about two-thirds of the way full, with a little opening at the top and one at the bottom. And in this, and it turns, and it turns actually um, each day one time, it turns with the cycle of the earth. And in it are six billion salt crystals, one for each person that lives on the face of the earth. So the first thing is you get to see how many people six billion people are, because salt (laughs) crystals are, you know, really tiny, and here's this huge thing with salt crystals. And then along the sides, you know, there's this great big, huge, um, transparent crystal that's turning like the earth every day. On the side are little vials. And one little vial will say, all the people in San Francisco. And it's that big, full of salt. 
you know, another tiny little vial will say, your friends, and it's got that much salt in it, right? Another vial will say, all the people you will meet in one lifetime, and it's about that big. Now she, the woman who created it, functions as a kind of priestess for the salt monument. And so every day in the morning she goes in, and what she does is she takes out of the bottom uh, 200,000 in a little vial, 200,000 crystals of salt for the 200,000 human beings that have died uh, that day. Is that the right number? I think so. And then she takes another larger vial and pours in 250,000 crystals in the top for all the human beings that came into the earth that day. And every day she does that. And you can go and just stand in the presence of these six billion crystals um, and watch her when she takes out, bows to it and takes out the morning, those who have passed on, and then adds the new ones who come in. My Life is uncertain. So a certain Sufi dervish came to stay at the palace of a sultan. And he said to the man at the gate, may may I stay for a night in your motel? And the guy at the gate was kind of, you know, what do you mean motel? This is the sultan's palace. And he said, will you just pass that message on to the sultan, see what he says. (laughs) The sultan was really insulted and said, bring that dervish in here, had the guards bring him in and said, you have, you have insulted this palace, how dare you? And the dervish looked back at the sultan and said, I just have a couple of questions for you, your highness. First of all, who owned this before you? My father. And where is he? Oh, he's passed, passed away. And who owned it before him? Oh, my grandfather. And where is he? Oh, he's passed away. And this place where people lodge for a brief while and move on, did you say it was not a motel? (laughs) This is the motel. It is the truth. So instead of grasping, the one who knows lives in the wisdom of insecurity. The one who knows in us lives with the reality that each day is precious because we don't know how many days we have. My wife is very good with this. Um, Whenever I go out or my daughter goes out, whenever anyone leaves, she makes sure to say goodbye. She's always done this, she says, because you never know whether you'll see this person again. If you had only a few days left to live, who would you call? What would you say? And why are you waiting? The questions. The one who knows lives with that truth and reality. The one who knows also sees the limits of pleasure. 
It is what it is. I mean, pleasure is great. The Buddha said, if it were not for pleasure, being what it is, being would not, beings would not get entangled in the world. Things are pleasant. The problem with pleasure is that it doesn't last. That pleasure is different than happiness. Yes, there is pleasure, all different kinds of pleasure, you know, and we can turn our life so that we get pleasure. But if we struggle to get it, you know, the right food and wine and travel and music and sex and more and more, you know, there's never enough of it, not to really satisfy us, because it's love that matters in the end of what we seek. Socrates, who was led a very frugal life, used to love to go to the marketplace. And one day one of his students or disciples said, why do you do that? And he said, so I can see how many things I'm happy without. (laughs) The one who knows honors the pleasures of life, which is different than honoring the beauty. There's also beauty. But really understands that this isn't the source of our happiness. It's how much we love and are loved. It's the generosity of our heart. As Martin Luther King said, I still believe in standing up for the truth as the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life, to live from that truth. It's not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to live in a sacred way, come what happens, come what may. And that place in us, the wisdom knows this, that there's a deeper happiness from that than anything else. The one who knows, the elders that teach in the every great tradition in the monasteries where I practice. The one who knows sees what they saw, that in this human realm we cannot escape sorrow and change and loss. That our human life is made of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And we are a river and we participate in this loss. No one is exempt. So Lama Yeshe, this great Tibetan enlightened master, wonderful teacher, was in the hospital for a long time because he had serious heart problems. And he wrote this letter to his favorite Dharma brother, another monk. And he said, after 41 days in the hospital, intensive care, my body is like the Lord of the cemetery, my mind like an anti-god, and my speech like the barkings of an old mad dog. That's how difficult it was for me. This is a really highly trained Lama. He said, it took me a long time after that to come back to stability and, and calm and wakefulness of mind. So if it happens to Lama Yeshe, guess what? 
It's part of this life. What do we do with the measure of sorrows that are given to us? How do we touch them? With compassion? Do, the, do we bear them with a, with a dignity? Or do we judge and blame ourselves and blame another? O nobly born, these are a part of your life. And they can be your teachers so that you can be free. The one who knows rests in the heart of awareness. The one who knows knows how to let go. The wise heart understands a shift of identity. In waking sleep, you know, our small sense of self, we get caught in the day-to-day business of survival trying to make it through and so forth. And that's natural. You can be kind to that. But it's easy to lose our goodwill, our spirit, our joy, to contract into what's called the body of fear, the small sense of self, and struggle. Struggle against the way things are. But the one who knows rests in the dance and says, yes, this is all a part of it. It is. Even the struggle is part of it. When we forget, we blame them, you know. It's somebody's fault. The government, our spouse or lover, the enemy, the liberals the conservatives, the neo-Nazis, the Muslims, the Russians, the Democrats, the Republicans, or we blame ourselves. It's our fault. That's the small sense of self. The place of wisdom in us knows that life has joy and sorrow woven in praise and blame, gain and loss, It's the very fabric of our existence. Anybody not have that? But that that is not who we are. This wonderful poem from Juan Ramon Jimenez, who writes, Yo no so yo, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit. And at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives sweet when I hate. The one who takes a walk when I am indoors. And the one who will remain standing when I die. There is a spirit in us that knows what is timeless and eternal beyond all the changing fortunes of our life. As the Ojibwe Indians put it, sometimes I go about pitying myself and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky. 
The one who knows meets this world with a freedom of heart so that we can forgive because each of us has been betrayed. It will happen to every single person. And not only have each of you been betrayed, you have all betrayed others. Even we don't want to do it, and we will sometimes. The one who knows, knows how to forgive and let go, like the Tibetan nuns sent to prison for their prayers and for their speaking the Dharma and their teachings, teenagers, some of them. And then they write out, you know, here we are, seven years in prison. A wonderful film made about these young nuns. Picture being carried away in the night, picture torture. You know what to imagine. You are modern, darkened rooms, hours of questioning, hunger, endless nights, beatings, and electric shock. Your crime, you wanted to recite your prayers. You wanted to live a holy life to honor your teachers. What then? If you survive, if they let you go after the torture, they force you to grow your hair They take your robes, they force you to marry. What do you do? What can you do? You pray for the enemy. That's the name of the film that was made from their prayers, a prayer for the enemy. You look and see that those who are harming you are creating the worst suffering of all. And you pray for them too. It's never too late to love. It's never too late to forgive. It's never too late to clear the heart and let go. We can all do it. The one who knows sees how interconnected we are, how much we need one another. And in this modern world, it gets more so. Somebody wrote, we will know the end of civilization when half of the world starves and the other half watches it on TV. And we see it, whether it's in the Middle East or our own cities or in Europe, you know, in Kosovo or in Latin America. We see the things that disquiet our heart, and they are part of us. They are our (coughs) mothers and our children and our soldiers and our brothers and sisters. Mr. Liu King served 11 years in Weinan Number 2 prison in Shaanxi province in China as a prisoner, political prisoner. During this time, Mr. Liu was forced to sit on a tiny wooden stool without moving for 10 hours a day while the other prisoners were around him. If he moved or spoke to anyone, he was beaten. 
and to end his years of suffering and assure a successful future, is what it was called. All he had to do was to sign a statement without naming others, saying that he had made mistakes in his thinking and his words. Against all odds for 11 years, Mr. Liu refused to sign the confession. On what basis did he rely? What allowed him to not sign that paper? When he was asked, he said, each time he looked at the paper, he saw before him the faces of his family, of his children, of his friends and those he knew in his village, and he remembered he could not sign. There is a community of beings that carries your spirit even when they are not with you. And the one who knows realizes this deep connection that no one can do it alone, no one exists alone. We need one another and we offer our hearts to one another. I was sitting with a friend as she was dying not so long ago. And I would chant a little bit. I breathed along with her. But mostly there wasn't much to do. I mean, it's like being with somebody when they're in labor. They're in labor, right? And there isn't a lot you can do. You can say breathe once in a while, right? But that's about it. And it turns out that dying is much the same. It's a kind of labor that one goes through to release this body and come back to the spirit. So I held her hand. I reminded her to breathe sometimes. Reminded her that she could let go. And that was about all. And you know, that was enough. That's really what mattered in the end. Just that we're there for another person is what matters. There is, oddly enough, in the one who knows this being of wisdom, a kind of innocence, an openness, an emptiness. We don't take ourselves to be, you know, who we usually think we are. There's some sense of mystery and beauty. Wisdom says I am nothing. Love says I am everything. Between these two my life flows. And I think at the end of life, certainly the people that I've sat with as they've died or the times that I've really looked at my own death, I think what happens is you kind of look and you say, wow, that was a trip, wasn't it? (laughs) I mean, that's it. That was an amazing journey. All that stuff happened. And it seemed in the middle to be so long and so real. And then, there it is. Wow, that was something. (laughs) But in us is also the child of the spirit. Because if you look honestly, the body ages and grows old. The mind doesn't. Look. Does your awareness feel any older than it did a year or two or ten or twenty? There's this 
space or sense of awareness or consciousness that we can rest and trust, that knows all of this dance of our life and says, yeah, that too, that's really interesting. Boy, you really got yourself in a pickle in that one, didn't you? Right? Do you know that place? The place that witnesses and yet also can say, this too. There's an innocence and a beauty and a simplicity, the child of the spirit. My favorite story of this is of the Dalai Lama. When he went to give teachings in Madison Square Garden, the Kala Chakra initiation into the Tibetan highest tantra on the wheel of time, birth and death, the creation of the universe of time and all the things in it. Very wonderful teachings. You know, and there's five or 10,000 people in Madison Square Garden and they put out all the Tibetan brocade and there was a whole um, retinue of senior lamas and before the Dalai Lama came in they blew those great big Tibetan all oh, those big horns and chanted oh my baby and then clashed the cymbals and all this kind of drums and great chanting and so forth and then the Dalai Lama comes in as he does you know and they made a big throne for him and he goes up this throne step by step to sit on top of the throne and to make it comfortable for him because it's a several day it's like four or five day initiation, they put a couple of mattresses on the top and then covered them with beautiful silk carpets and brocade. And he sat down and it bounced. It's kind of, you know, and he smiled a little bit and then he bounced again and smiled a little bit more. And then he just started bouncing up and down like a kid on this throne in Madison Square Garden. You know, before offering the highest teachings of the Kalashakra Tantra to you know, 10,000 people. Here's the Dalai Lama just bouncing up and down like a kid. There is something so beautiful in our original innocence, in this one who knows, that sees that the mystery of life is not some problem to solve, but the reality within which we live and exist. The abode of this one who knows in us is honesty, seeing things as they are, and compassion, a kind of sacred presence to see with the eyes of the beloved. So much activity, you know, all the busyness that we have to do or that we elect to do. I myself know it very well living in you know, this complicated life, all the ambition, all the things we're trying to do, so much activity, so much looking for happiness. This quote I want to read you, money does not corrupt people. What corrupts people is lack of affection. Money is simply the bandage which some hurt people put over their wounds. All these things that we struggle to do and get and have, looking for love, really. And it is here, not by grasping, but by letting go, not by possessing and having, but by a presence that we give 
to our loved ones, our friends, our family, our community, to the earth on which we live. Because we're here for only a short while. And when we know this, there comes a great trust. I think meditation is really learning trust, that you can take this seat and have the joys and sorrows and fears and every story go through you, which happens, doesn't it? And bow to them all and say, yes, this too, and rest on this earth with your heart open to meet it all with the great heart of compassion. To discover your capacity to open to and honor this life, to live as a king or queen, your own dignity, your own life. Now the poet Rumi, I'll end with his words. He says, forget your life. Say God is great. Get up. You think you know what time it is? It's time to pray. Don't knock on any random door like a beggar. Reach your long hand out to another door beyond where you go on the street where everyone says, how are you? And no one says, how aren't you? If you are here unfaithfully with us, you are causing terrible damage. If you are here unfaithfully with us, you are causing terrible damage. If you open your loving to the divine, you're helping people you don't know and have never even met. Is what I say true? Say yes quickly, if you know, if you've known it from before the beginning of the universe. Say yes quickly. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.